The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the October 2014 podcast. This month, we'll hear from researchers on whether a new TB treatment has been successful. The current six months is good, but it's six months. So we want to do as good, but in four months or in two months' time. How a sanitation campaign in rural India has led to a rethink about future interventions. For many people, open defecation is seen as a preferable option to the, the intervention, a pit latrine. And we take a trip to the archives to discover how the school has been tackling HIV and AIDS since the early days of the disease. So we have this amazing set of comic trading cards. So you've got celebrities who've had AIDS. Tuberculosis is one of the biggest killers worldwide. In 2012, an estimated 8.6 million people became sick with TB and 1.3 million died from the disease. The standard treatment for TB is very effective if taken for the full six months. But in reality, many patients don't do this. Shorter and simpler TB treatments are urgently needed, as stopping treatment before completion may result in drug resistance as well as allowing the potentially fatal disease to spread to others. A clinical drug trial conducted in five sub-Sahara African countries looked at how well a shortened four-month treatment was tolerated and if it could be considered as an alternative to current six-month standard treatment. Dr Corin Merle and Dr Catherine Fielding, who led the project at the school, told us more. So the, the project is the Oflatab project. It, it's, a, it's a phase three randomized TB trial aiming at assessing the efficacy and safety of a four-month regimen uh, with gadifloxacin, replacing etambutol, and uh, in TB patients. And actually what we found is that, first, that this regimen is safe. Second, that we could perhaps shorten the TB treatment to four months, but not in all patients. And for sure, our results show that this regimen cannot replace the current six-month standard regimen. So that's not the solution. We need to, do, to continue to do research to find a shortened treatment regimen. Catherine will explain on the, our role in terms of statistics. Yes, so um, the school's role was to coordinate the data management of the project, which, as you can imagine, was a large undertaking. So just to remind you, it was five countries recruiting and data were collected from each of these centres and entered into a database. So our role was to oversee the data management and then finally to conduct all statistical analysis of the study. How does this project differ from other past or ongoing TB research projects? Actually, the, the, the thing is that in the TB world, there have been really few research in TB drug developments as until 2000. So our trial, like uh, two other trials that have just been published, are really the new generation trial, if you want. So that is, that is totally new because then if we refer to the British Research Medical Council trial, that was in the 60s, 60s, 70s. So we didn't have at this time the same type of patient. Now we have patients who are TB, but they are co-infected with HIV. We didn't have the same capacity in terms of lab uh, facility. So obviously the trials are not exactly the same. In terms of people trialed, is this bigger than other studies that have been done before? And how does that affect your work as a statistician? 
maybe I'll answer that question by also acknowledging that there are two other trials which have recently completed and also presenting their results in the New England Journal. So that's uh, the Rifiquin study and the Remox study. And all these studies actually had many similarities. Um, all were certainly looking at a four-month regimen against the control regimen and in some senses had similar sizes. Actually, I think our, our study was the largest of the three. And, of course, that does help us statistically. Maybe one of the aspects of these three trials and, all, I guess, all the ongoing trials is that these trials are what's called non-inferiority trials. And this is quite a complex idea in terms of comparing two regimens. Usually, um, in the past, one is interested in looking at whether a a new regimen is better than another regimen, and that's called a superiority trial. Whereas all the current trials that we've just mentioned are called non-inferiority, and we're, well, that's what we mean. What we mean by saying that we're trying to demonstrate that the new regimen is as good as the control regimen, and generally that requires a larger sample size, and that clearly is reflected in all of the three studies. Should we say that it's non-inferiority because the current six months is good, but it's six months. So we want to do as good, but in four months or in two months' time. What are the advantages of bringing it down from six months to four? The TB disease is the disease of the poor, and when you, you take the, the TB treatment, the current one, you have to take it every day. So uh, depending on how it is delivered, but the, it has been shown that the cost of taking the treatment, and then because you have to go and find your treatment or you have to go to the TB center to take your treatment, you lose time and you cannot work during this time. So this population who is already poor, because of the disease, get poorer. So if you shorten this episode by two months, then it's less uh, an issue for them in their day-to-day -day life, you see? So that, that's the big advantage, in addition to the fact that it's easier to be to follow, to, to be compliant if you have a four-month treatment than if it's a six-month treatment. And also the big picture is, can we reduce it even further and to go down to a two-month regimen? But that's looking way into the future. Over the 10 years of this trial, which is a long time, could you summarize some of the major challenges you faced? Sure. In terms of challenges, what is difficult in TB trial is that you will embark for a long, long trial. So obviously, there are turnover in the team. You, you train people and they're leaving, so you need to train again. And because we were working in this country, so Guinea, there have been political events, then very difficult to recruit patients, to follow the patient. There have been problems in different places, in different, in the different countries. So that has stopped the recruitment or slowed down the recruitment. So that is maintaining the dynamic for everyone and it's maintaining the, the enthusiasm. Uh, it's quite challenging and that, that was our role in terms of clinical coordination. After that, perhaps Catherine will say cleaning all the data um, also was challenging because it's a a lot of data. It's a lot of patient and it's 18 visits. A lot of uh, so a lot of data that you need to pay attention to and to and to clean. And that has been a really long process. The key message is never underestimate. You know the the 
importance of data management. And in, in this study, as Corin alluded to, it, it was a very complex study. It needed to be a complex study, a large number of patients randomised from five different countries, many follow-up visits, and with lots of different data being collected at the follow-up visits, laboratory data. So it's a, it's a challenge, and getting those data to a state where we're happy and that we can sign off on those data and analyse and report is, is a long process, but we're there. <laughs> Yeah, and you need also to imagine that uh, because there are five countries, some countries speaking French, others yeah. speaking English, our data management at one point was in Bangkok, the drugs were coming from from India, there were a centre in, in um, the, the mycobacteriological lab in charge of overviewing the quality of all these tests was in Belgium. You see a lot of complexity, and in each country, 50, around 50 members working at different things in the in the trial so this is quite a lot of people and with um, culturally differences and so that was also very challenging to maintain the dynamic and um, and the answers between everyone so it was but it was really nice adventure no? uh, uh, yeah a wonderful adventure <laughs> that was Corinne Merl and Catherine Fielding the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast Halving the number of people in the world who don't have access to safe drinking water and sanitation is one of the international targets set out in the UN's Millennium Development Goals. In India, an estimated 60 to 70% of the population lack access to a safe form of sanitation. The results from a school-led study, in partnership with WaterAid, to understand some of the benefits of a sanitation intervention have just been published in the Lancet Global Health Journal. We Skyped the study's author, Oliver Cumming, from the school, who told us more about its background and conclusions. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in 2010 formed a partnership with the international NGO uh, WaterAid to do a rigorous study to try and understand what are the, 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 the potential health, child health benefits of such a sanitation intervention. The intervention itself was delivered within the Indian, Indian government sanitation policy, which was at the time called the Total Sanitation Campaign, and focused in rural areas, in, in villages in the state of uh, Odisha in eastern India. This was a, a big study a randomized control trial, recruiting 50 villages into the treatment arms, the people who received the sanitation intervention, and 50 communities uh, sort of allocated to a control group so that we could compare the health effects that we that we measured. What physically were, were you providing with the communities in the uh, sanitation arm? What was being provided, or I should say what was being promoted, was uh, a basic but sort of safe, hygienic pit latrine uh, in accordance with the, the guidance provided by the Indian government. And the, the promotion activities to encourage people to, to construct and ultimately use these facilities was provided by uh, local NGO partners operating within the umbrella of, uh, sort of government policy. And, and what were the results? The results which were published in the, the journal, The Lancet Global Health, were you know, possibly somewhat disappointing you know, for, for, for many people. The headline finding was that uh, this intervention, as it was delivered, uh, did not have an impact on the uh, health outcomes that we were interested in here, which was uh, diarrheal disease, 
um, uh, intestinal worm infections, anthropometric uh, measures of child growth. But the study also reported that the intervention itself was not successful on two critical fronts. So the first was that far fewer latrines were constructed than we would have hoped for. So in the intervention arms, the people, the people within the study who received the intervention, there was about a 50% increase in households uh, with a pit latrine. But this still left 40%, almost 40% of the treatment group without a latrine. The second area where the intervention was not as successful as we would have hoped was in encouraging people to actually use uh, these facilities and use these facilities all of the time. So even amongst the households that decided to invest in and construct a latrine as a result of this intervention, a very high proportion, in fact, in most of those households, at least one member of the of the household continued to practice open defecation. So rather than using the latrine, they continued with the practice of leaving the village and you know defecating in the surrounding area. And do you get any sense of why that might have been? Is it just a, a cultural thing? The, these findings confirm what sort of many people working on sanitation, water and sanitation in, in India have known for some time and in fact have been very concerned about. This study was not designed to understand why the intervention uh, would be successful or not. But we, you know, there are, there are answers, you know, there are explanations offered for that in, in the literature. For example, it's, it's very clear within uh, many parts of India in rural settings that there isn't a taboo against defecating in the open that you might encounter in, in other countries. In fact, and, and actually I think you know, many people actually you know, listening would, would empathise if they were familiar with, uh, you know, with the setting, with the realities of a, of a pit latrine. Many people would prefer, rather than uh, you know, using a latrine, generally very small, you know, quite hot, you know, hopefully not too many, but there may be flies around, they would actually prefer to you know, wander out you know, at uh, you know, sort of a, you know, a sunrise or sunset uh, tradition and find a quiet spot and defecate you know in the open fresh air possibly a nice view you know the bottom line is here is not necessarily you that for, for many people open defecation is seen as a preferable option to you know the the intervention the thing that was being offered here which is a, a pit latrine so what that suggests is that these interventions the type of sanitation which is being provided is not necessarily what people want. And if people don't want this sanitation, the chances that they are going to use it all of the time is, of course, you know, much, much, much diminished. So uh, what happens next with the results of this study? Where do you go from here? This study is, you know, is really important. Anyone who reads a little bit further beyond the headline will, will see that that's not a surprising finding for an intervention that didn't, didn't success, successfully extend access to latrines for everybody in the treatment group. And within that, only persuaded a small proportion of households to use those facilities. What do we do with this information? Well, it's actually very useful information 
in terms of re, you know, redesigning or adapting policy, uh, programs, interventions within the Indian context, but also I'd argue sort of further afield. In India, we have a huge uh, opportunity here because the, the total sanitation campaign has been revamped. Uh, it, was, it was revamped a year or so ago. It's now with the new, uh, the new government in India under Prime Minister Modi has launched a new uh, sanitation policy. So there is sort of huge interest and energy. What is really important is that the basic findings from this study are brought to bear in that process of designing a more effective sanitation policy and more effective sanitation programs in India. And the bottom line is that we need to design interventions which provide facilities, sanitation facilities, that people want and will therefore be more likely to use. If we get those bits right, then we can start to think about uh, the potential health benefits that will accrue to those populations. That was Oliver Cumming. School researchers have been at the forefront of the response to HIV and AIDS since the epidemic began. A new exhibition in the school foyer is now showcasing historical material and items from current HIV and AIDS research projects. It explores initial responses to the epidemic and charts the global story of treatment and prevention of the disease. We spoke to archivist Chris Olver, who has put the exhibition together. My role has involved cataloguing six and now seven collections of historical papers relating to the research undertaken at the school or individuals associated with the school who've been working within the field. So what kind of things are we talking about? It's a really big mixture of material. So we have papers relating to sort of actual field work in sub-Saharan Africa, say the papers of Peter Piot, so we have his early sort of work in Kinshasa on Project CEDA to sort of more sort of social research into the national prevention campaigns in the 80s and 90s. So we're talking about posters and books? Yes, and... a lot of posters, a lot of ephemera. So we have 734 posters, um, AIDS posters from throughout Western Europe. They were collected by one of by Kay Wellings in the 1980s uh, as part of an EU project called Concerted Action. This was sort of like a pan-European project to sort of compare prevention campaigns throughout Europe. What else have we got in this collection? I think the things which I find particularly interesting are sort of some of the sort of the related ephemera. So we have this amazing set of comic trading cards made in 1993 by Eclipse Comics, which basically it's like 111 cards with all this kind of encyclopedic knowledge of AIDS. So you've got celebrities who've had AIDS or sort of the institutions involved in AIDS, like uh, the gay men's health crisis and stuff like that. And they're actually incredibly informative. Unfortunately, the company went bust sort of like soon after. But in terms of sort of archival material, it's brilliant. I think other things on a more sort of serious note is some of our papers relating to really significant events in the, the history of AIDS or, or the history of sort of sexual health within this country. So we have like correspondence about lobbying against Section 28, which was when the 
Thatcher government made it illegal to teaching sort of about homosexuality at schools, which wasn't repealed until 2000, or some of the material relating to UN AIDS when it comes to how the agency, the UN agency, tried to sort of persuade the Mbeki government in South Africa to actually stop their sort of denialist stance and actually give out or at least purchase antiretrovirals for the people there. What's the, um, if you like, the, the exhibit that, that is dated earliest, if that makes sense? What's your oldest exhibit? That would be from our new collection relating to Joseph Sonnebend, who was actively treating AIDS patients in New York from 1980. So some of the material that we have, we have a letter dated uh, the 30th of June, just basically a circular trying to accumulate information about this new disease, bearing in mind that the first report of this nature on AIDS was published on the 3rd of June, uh, 1981. So it's incredibly early, the breadth of our sort of collection. Of course, and... There have been huge changes socially, politically, in the last 35 years, medically, how we can treat HIV and AIDS. Are you collecting information right up to yesterday? Our latest document comes from 2012, and that's from Peter Peart, who is the director of the school. But in terms of sort of... The great thing about this exhibition is the fact that we... Yeah, we have the historical material, but thankfully, because the school is uh, so heavily involved in current research in HIV, they're filling in the remainder. We will have images and artefacts from some of the current research projects in the school, particularly relating to sort of like prevention research in sub-Saharan Africa. And there is one glittering, sparkling exhibit amongst (laughs) all the papers and the posters. Yes, so... This is the red ribbon pendant. So the red ribbon symbol was basically created in 1991 by a New York artist consensus, So, and that was the first symbol uh, for a disease. And what we have is the English artist Andrew Logan's basically homage to the symbol. He created this pendant to remember the friends he lost to the disease. And, yeah, it's this brilliantly sort of sparkly red metal pendant. You have to see it to believe it. Really wonderful. It it kind of shows the benefits of outreach because this was donated by one of the friends of the school, Lynn Rothman, uh, who's currently on the board of the Elton John AIDS Foundation. And she was visiting our archive and she mentioned that she was in possession of this red ribbon from uh, which was created by the artist Andrew Logan and like two weeks later we just received an envelope with the ribbon in and a handwritten note from Andrew Logan so it's wonderful it's really very beautiful it adds a lot of sparkle to your selection of exhibits yes the key thing about the exhibition is that it is showing the development of prevention and treatment so I think the one thing is what I've tried to do is trying to show some of the initial reactions before AIDS was properly defined because it wasn't until 1984 that the virus was actually identified and it wasn't until 1985 that the test was properly being used thoroughly throughout medical systems. So I think the one thing I've found doing this is just the early years and just 
the massive silence and denial of the disease and just seeing when it had it did actually make an impact on sort of mainstream media and politics the stigmatization that people who were dying of this disease that was occurring it was it's horrific to see in your own country just the level of sort of ignorance and bigotry which was just so prevalent at the time that was chris over you can visit the exhibition hiv and aids controlling and eradicating a modern epidemic at the keppel street school building until december or you can view a slideshow of some of the exhibits by visiting the school website and as always you can find out more and listen to extended versions of all the interviews on this month's podcast by visiting us at lshtm.ac.uk thanks for listening